do. Rabbi Feldman, can you please give us a warm welcome for our guest speaker tonight, the famous Yossi Klein Halevi. Yossi, welcome back. Uh, it's great to have you, and uh, we always appreciate having you. Um, you came on last summer, and uh, very gracious great to come again. And uh, Yossi Klein Halevi is very much a voice of, I think, the Anglo and the Ole community in Israel, even though he's been here many years, since the uh, late 1970s, I believe. His uh, latest book, Like Dreamers, uh, well, his latest book is uh, Letters from My Palestinian Neighbor, which has uh, hit the New York Times bestseller list and uh, has gone into a second printing with the letters from his Palestinian neighbors included. Spoke about that last year for us. The book, uh, Like Dreamers, also Jewish Book Club Award. Uh, Yossi is very much a voice of, uh, of what's going on in Israel and has his hand on the pulse and always gets us to think in a very deep way about who we are as Jews, as a Jewish people, as individuals, and our role in the world. So Yossi, thank you for coming on. And uh, we're gonna, we look forward to hearing about what you're gonna say about uh, after uh, the day after Corona. So, so thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Shana, and Chak Sameach, everyone. It's, it's really wonderful to be back with, with you guys. And um, Shana said that uh, she hopes that uh, you won't uh, have been confronted with thoughts that you didn't want to think about. I, I, I kind of feel that that's my job description. <laughs> it's, to, uh, it's, to raise, uh, it's to raise those thoughts. So what I'd like to do is, um, is uh, lay out some political thoughts, uh, some ideas about this moment politically, then think about uh, the, the morning after in terms of Israeli society, and finally uh, conclude with a few uh, spiritual uh, speculations since uh, it is, after all, Pesach. So, well, let's begin with, uh, with news tonight, which is uh, the talk that, that uh, Benny Gantz is about to give to the nation, uh, maybe even uh, being delivered as we, uh, as we meet. And I imagine that what he's going to say is, uh, is that he's committed to national unity. He has not been able to reach an agreement yet with Netanyahu, and he's been dragging his feet. Uh, a couple of words about Benny Gantz. The, the question really uh, that so many Israelis are asking, uh, is uh, Benny Gantz just naive uh, or is he fatally naive? And, uh, and I think that that remains an open question. The fact that he went into these negotiations with Netanyahu without shoring up uh, guarantees uh, without uh, dotting the, the I's and crossing the T's uh, is astonishing to me. Uh, the fact that he seemed to believe that Netanyahu uh, was uh, serious this time about national unity uh, rather than, than consider the possibility, at least the possibility, that what Netanyahu was really aiming at was the destruction of blue and white, which he, which these negotiations achieved. And so 
I, I'm, I'm, as a as a blue and white voter, I, I, I'm, I'm a card carrying voter. We don't have cards, but I figure after voting three times in a year for a party, you become a card carrying member by default. So as a as a passionately committed centrist, who welcomed the emergence of the first really serious centrist party that we've had that, that seemed to have had a chance at, uh, at challenging the right. And I say challenging the right because there is no left anymore in Israel. And I was a centrist when we were challenging the left, but now the, the only really significant uh, political contest in Israel is right versus center. It is not right, right versus left anymore. And this is something that we here in Israel take for granted, but Jews in the diaspora have not yet internalized that the Israeli political uh, map has shifted from a left versus right contest to a centrist versus right. And I think that really is significant uh, for Israeli society. But the price that uh, Benny has paid for, uh, for entering into negotiations with Netanyahu, inconclusive negotiations, negotiations that as of, as of this moment have nothing whatsoever to show for themselves. Uh, the price that he's paid is the self-destruction of uh, the best hope that the center has had uh, since, uh, since Ariel Sharon created uh, Dima uh, almost, uh, almost 20 years ago. And so what we're looking at now is, um, is really a, a political tragedy. What I will say in defense of, uh, of Benny Gantz is that he prevented the Israeli political system from experiencing a total meltdown over questions of democratic legitimacy. And what we, what we tend to forget is where we were at two and a half weeks ago uh, when Benny stepped in and began his negotiations with Netanyahu. Uh, we had just experienced a convergence of two of the most serious crises of democratic legitimacy that this country has ever been through. First of all, without going into all the details, uh, Israelis know it, diaspora Jews, my word for it, we had uh, the most serious crisis that we've ever had in the long-standing struggle between uh, the Knesset and the Supreme Court for who has primacy, who has, who has the main authority. And along with that, uh, with, with, with that crisis, which really came to a head with the Supreme Court ordering the Speaker of the Knesset to keep the Knesset open, and the, and the Knesset speaker shutting down the Knesset in defiance of an explicit order from the court. We have never seen anything like this before. But that was only one crisis. The other crisis was that we came to a moment that I have dreaded for years, and it suddenly, it suddenly happened along with this crisis in, 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 in authority between the court and, uh, and the Knesset. And that, and that crisis was over Israel's basic identity as a democratic state and a Jewish state. Suddenly the political system 
split apart over this question, which we always used to take for granted in Israel, that this is who we are. We are a Jewish state and a democratic state. Or to put it another way, Israel is the state of all Jews, whether or not they are citizens of Israel. And it is the state of all of its citizens, whether or not they are Jews. That, to my mind, is a normative reading of the Declaration of Independence and the intentions of the founders in, in envisioning the future state. So what happened two and a half weeks ago was that Netanyahu suddenly declared war against the notion of Israel as a democratic state by claiming that he actually won the election because he or his bloc won a majority of Jewish vote. Now that's true. Benny Gantz's bloc, however, won a majority of Israeli votes because Benny Gantz was including the 15-person party uh, of the Arab list. Now, when we have national elections to determine who will be prime minister, whose votes ultimately count? Is it only the Jews or is it all Israelis? This is the question that we always took for granted here and suddenly Netanyahu upended. So for those of us in the center, Netanyahu threatened the most basic identity of Israel as a democratic state. The problem is that along with that red line that Bibi crossed, Benny Gantz also crossed a red line. And even though at the time I was in favor of him crossing that red line, and I'll get to what that was in a moment, in retrospect, I realized it was a mistake. And that red line that Gantz crossed was to take the Arab list and try to rely on their 15 seats to create a narrow government coalition. The problem with relying on the Arab list is that it is a party that has almost no legitimacy among Jewish Israelis for very good reason. Not because it represents Arabs, not because it represents non-Jews, but because the party is fundamentally opposed to Israel as a Jewish state in any form, and because many of its supporters, including many of its Knesset members, have openly identified with Israel's enemies, have openly supported terrorism. Uh, one of the uh, Arab uh, party leaders, uh, Azmi Bashara, uh, had to leave Israel uh, because he was uh, found uh, to be spying for Hezbollah during the 2006 war. And so we're talking about a level of, of delegitimization that, uh, that really can't be compared to situations in other, in other democracies. And so when Benny Gantz tried to create a co narrow coalition government with the Arab list, right-wing Israelis said, you are destroying the Jewishness of the state. And so the crisis that we were facing two and a half weeks ago was the right was declaring, uh, the, the, was declaring Israel as a democracy to be illegitimate. And from the perception of, of the right, the center was doing the same uh, regarding Israel as a Jewish state. And so now we're in a very different place uh, politically, where we're back to sordid Israeli business as usual. It's, it's, it's ugly Israeli politics as usual, but it is not 
uh, the kind of crisis uh, that I would define as existential, and we were in a kind of a political existential crisis two and a half weeks ago. We may, we may return to that if these negotiations break down and Benny Gantz tries somehow to put together his, uh, his broken coalition, uh, if only for the purpose of passing a law that would deny Netanyahu the ability to run uh, in the next election, uh, or the way the law would put it, to deny the right of a candidate to run who is under indictment, which of course means Netanyahu, uh, then we could find ourselves again back in that same moment where right-wing voters will accuse the center of uh, trying to, to uh, create a political reality based on the support of an illegitimate party. So that's, Yossi, that's where we are at this moment. Yossi, I was gonna jump in and ask you whether you think uh, that given the whole uh, corona crisis, do you think there is a change in business as usual? Do you think there will be a change as business in, as usual? Uh, people Look, are asking right politicians now, to step up to the plate. Yeah, so right and, now... And if you could expand on that, where you think Israel, will it change business as usual? So here, you know, I think that what, what Benny Gantz tried to do was, was answer your question. He stepped up and he said, we cannot be going through a, a, a major crisis uh, in... Uh, in, 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 our, in our being, uh, while at the same time facing this worldwide crisis. We, we have to step up and we have to put our political crises aside. Now, what we've seen from Netanyahu in the last few weeks and the way he's been conducting these negotiations uh, politically is business as usual. And so here you have a, again, I would say a naive, uh, a politician, former general, who really felt responsibility for creating a different kind of politics at a moment of national emergency, um, and uh, coming up against politics as usual. And I think that this is a very useful metaphor for thinking about what we're facing as a society. What is it that's going to change? And what is it that's, that is just so endemic to, to Israeli society, attitudes, psyche, that, that not even a crisis of this proportion can, can change us. And uh, I, I would put Netanyahu in that category today. In the past, I would not have. I would have considered that Netanyahu and the politics he represents is capable of, of, a, of, of transcending uh, pettiness, but he, today is really a, um, a model for, uh, for exactly that part of Israel that seems to be uh, immune to even world-shattering change. Now, where I think the changes uh, are going to happen uh, is, um, is in two areas. Uh, and, uh, and the two areas are related. And that is that in Israel, we have a mainstream and we have a periphery. And the periphery are those communities that don't identify with the Israeli normative ethos of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And that periphery is basically two communities. 
On the one hand, you have the Arab-Israeli community, which wants to see Israel more as a democratic state, does not, of course, identify with Israel as a Jewish state. And the Haredi community, which identifies with Israel completely as a Jewish state, uh, much less so uh, with the democratic And these uh, are, happen to also be the two fastest growing communities in Israel. Corona has given Israeli society an opportunity, perhaps a once-in-a-generation opportunity, to reorder our distorted relationships with the uh, With the Haredim, I think it's very straightforward. We can no longer continue subsidizing the, the separatism of 10% of Israeli society. We can no longer continue subsidizing the voluntary poverty of the Haredi world. Because what Corona has shown us is that not only is there a, a terrible social and political price that we have paid for Haredi separatism, but also under certain circumstances, uh, there could be a literal life and death price that we pay. And that's, and that's what we are, that's what we have begun to see uh, with the breakdown uh, in the Haredi communities. And God forbid if uh, Corona uh, continues to intensify, then we may really be seeing uh, a, a serious threat to the ability of the uh, health system to cope. And so this is a moment that's going to require a deep rethinking about our relationship with the Haredi world. In terms of the Arab community, for all of the mistake that I think Benny did make uh, in trying to legitimize uh, his narrow coalition on the basis of, of an illegitimate party. Uh, nevertheless, a psychological red line was crossed in the sense that it is no longer unthinkable, it's no longer unimaginable to create a coalition with Arab parties. And one of the anomalies that we, we experience in, in, in our uh, Arab-Israeli politics here is that a majority of Arab-Israelis are integrationist-minded. They want to be part of Israeli society. But the politicians that they send to the Knesset tend to be more nationalist than integrationist. And so even though many of us want to bring in uh, the Arab constituency into, into government, the parties that they elect the Knesset make that impossible. And so I'm hoping that this is going to be a moment, first of all, of challenging the Arab-Israeli community and asking them some very hard questions. If you really want to be part of the mainstream, as every poll that I've ever seen verifies, when Israeli Arabs are asked, do you want to be part of the Israeli mainstream? It's 80 plus percent. Are you proud to be an Israeli? Proud to be an Israeli? Over 50% in every poll. And so that gives us a basis for really creating a new relationship. The other thing I, I think in terms of our relationship with the Arab-Israeli community that for me is so moving is that, is that this is Israel's first national crisis 
again, one is almost tempted to say existential crisis, that is not related to Israel as a Jewish state. It is not a threat by our neighbors. It is not an attack on Israel as a, as, as a foreign implant here. This is our first existential crisis that is entirely civic by nature. This is not a Jewish, this is not a moment of Jewish existential threat. It is our first truly Israeli crisis. That gives us an opportunity for the morning after Corona to start thinking about what does Israeliness mean? You know, we used to have coalition crises here over who is a Jew. The next crisis that we need to have, we need to initiate, is who is an Israeli? What is Israeliness? Are Arabs part of Israeliness? And if so, to what extent? Are diaspora Jews part of Israeliness? My answer is yes, to some extent. These are the questions that need to be on the table because this crisis is raising them in ways that we haven't experienced before. Now, the other thing here that, that's, that I think is worth noting in terms of our relationship with Arab Israelis, is that the one part of Israeli society that has always been completely integrated is the healthcare system. Where Arabs and Jews encounter each other most intimately is in the maternity wards, in, 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 in the cancer wards, 20 plus percent of Israeli doctors are Arab. 30 plus percent of Israeli nurses are Arab. 40 plus percent of our pharmacists are Arab. That means that the healthcare system was in some sense uniquely prepared for this moment of Israel's first civic crisis, which happened to have been a health crisis. And that really gives us an opportunity that we haven't had before. But what worries me about the morning after, and I've been through so many morning afters of Israeli crises, over 40 years now of morning afters, is that one of our strongest tendencies, one of our strongest traits, is also one of our weakest traits. It's strongest in a time of crisis and weakest the morning after. And that is our ability to cope by simply maintaining as much of a, of a routine as possible. Israelis have an extraordinary capacity to maintain business as usual under extreme threat. That's wonderful when you're going through a crisis, a war or now Corona, the problem is the morning after, that same impulse to maintain business as usual leads us time and again to miss opportunities for transformation. And I'm hoping that this time there will be a deep realization that something basic has to change. Certainly in our relationship with the Haredi community, I think many Israelis feel that acutely today. It hasn't quite been articulated yet. It is a, a, an incohate sense of anger. Many of us know that something profound is, is skewed in our relationship with the Haredi world and that somehow corona, corona reveals that. And so what do we do with that the morning after? 
these are the two questions that I, that, that I feel are most urgent uh, on the Israeli agenda. And these are entirely domestic questions. They're not questions about security. They're not questions about Iran. They're not questions about borders. Although I do think that Iran is going to be very much on our national agenda the morning after Corona. Uh, and we can talk about that as well. But in terms of the health of Israeli society, and I mean health, our, our, our social health, our, our national health, our spiritual health, this is really going to, to depend on our ability to renegotiate our relationship with these two peripheral communities that have not yet developed a healthy relationship with the mainstream. Jonathan, do you want to, uh, you want to jump in with any questions or? Uh... Well, before we get to the questions, and we'd like to do that, maybe just a word about kind of Israel in the larger world. Are there opportunities here to change the Israeli-Palestinian political uh, relationship, the Israeli-Arab world relationship? Okay, I think that um, what we're seeing in terms, I mean, what, what, I'm, what I'm picking up from parts of the Arab world is that Corona only confirms the need to, to put 70-year Arab-Israeli war behind us. I, I am not picking up similar, uh, similar trends in Palestinian and I think that, that's, uh, that corona, in that sense, is really going to intensify trends that were already happening before the epidemic, which was that large parts of the Arab world were beginning to open up to Israel in all kinds of extraordinary ways. And I, I've, I've been experiencing it just in, in my own uh, small way in, in the work that I do uh, in reaching out uh, with the book that I wrote, this Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which is translated into Arabic, and it's available for free downloading in Arabic. And I've been inviting respondents from Palestinian society and from across the Arab world. And the responses that I've gotten have been fantastic from the non-Palestinian Arab world, uh, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia's leading news weekly uh, gave the book a two-page, very positive review. This is a book explaining Zionism to Muslims. And, uh, and, it, and it, was, it was given a, a, a really good review, a serious review, in Saudi Arabia's leading news weekly, Al-Majala. Uh, there are blogs, there are papers uh, around uh, the Arab world that have, that have responded. And so what I see, again, in, in, in my own, you know, in my own al my own small, small world, uh, is, I think, being played out strategically much more broadly, which is that uh, a large part of the Arab world are looking for an alliance with Israel against Iran. But there's another element to that, which is that parts of the Arab world are now open in a way that they've never been before to hearing our story, to hearing something about our, our, our legitimacy, our indigenousness here. Palestinian society, I think it's, uh, it's much less. Uh, and um, will, will, this, uh, will this experience uh, raise the walls higher? Will there be voices saying, 
look, we, we live in such close proximity, we need to cooperate. Uh, I think it depends in part what happens in the next couple of months uh, in Palestinian society. So far, uh, so far, we're not seeing that. Okay, thank you. Uh, Shanna, you want to uh, moderate and open up to some of the larger questions? Yes, uh, and I've been keeping track of some on a notepad. So before we get into the, so I would like to invite everyone to write their questions in our chat. This is a really effective way for me to get everyone's questions in. So write those in, in the next couple of moments. In the meantime, I invite everyone to like our Facebook page, Tribe Tel Aviv. You'll be able to see all of our events there. You can also follow me personally. My name is Shanna Fold. I'm a journalist, I'm a reporter, a TV broadcaster, writer, and I host these events, uh, which are very dear to me. So follow me on social media so that you can find out about our events. We have had Yossi Klein Halevi with us a few times and every time it is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Yossi. So follow me so that you can figure out what is happening next. Shana Fuld, S-H-A-N-N-A-F-U-L-D, Tribe Tel Aviv, that's also our Facebook page. And um, now I'm going to take some questions. I'm going to begin with um, Avraham, who asked a question. How can you say that the Arabs want to be a part of uh, society, but they elect leaders that don't? How could you make that claim? Yeah, it's a really good question. It is one of the deep anomalies uh, of Israeli politics. Uh, when I say that Arabs want to be part of Israeli society, uh, bear in mind that there is a minority, probably a substantial minority, that is alienated from Israeli identity. But the fact that every poll of the last years has shown a majority of Isra Israeli Arabs answering affirmatively when asked whether they're proud to be Israelis is, I think, uh, a, a really surprising uh, statistic. The, 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 other, the other thing that I, that, that I, I would uh, urge us to pay more attention to as a society uh, are the many thousands of young Arab Israelis who have defied uh, the wishes of their own political leadership uh, and signed up for Cherut Lumi for uh, national service. Uh, alternative uh, national service to alternative to the military, uh, and uh, this is, I think, a a a one of the most hopeful developments uh, of recent years, which uh, Israeli Jewish society has not paid uh, sufficient attention to, and uh, and there are other indications of uh, of of Arab Israeli. Uh, attempts to integrate into the mainstream. I, I, I spend some time in the Arab-Israeli community. It's a community I'm very interested in. Uh, I, uh, I worked with that community in, in different capacities. And, um, and I think that uh, it is one of the great underutilized resources of Israeli society, as I think the Haredi community is one of our great underutilized resources. Uh, this is a community of tremendous uh, intellectual capabilities. And, uh, the Israeli economy desperately needs Israeli uh, participation. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, this question I had to throw in Google Translate. 
Um, this question is from Mike Cohen. He wants to know, does Netanyahu really prefer to turn the government into a left-wing slash Arab rotation through Gantz than to pass the baton to number two in the right-wing emergency coalition one day? And if that's incorrect, please correct me in English. Well, of course Netanyahu would prefer a, a right-wing government. He doesn't have the numbers. So the reason that we're going through these contortions is because he doesn't have a government. So it will either be a coalition uh, with, uh, with Gantz or a fourth election in the middle of, uh, of a pandemic. Uh, that's, that's a really exciting prospect for Israeli society. Okay, um, moving on. What do you, this is from Tzvi Lifshitz. Thank you, Tzvi. What do you think of someone like Gideon Sha'al, given that he is the heir apparent to Bibi and Likud, if the Knesset should be given the go-ahead to choose someone? Yeah, I, I don't think he's the heir apparent. Uh, he doesn't have a strong enough base in the Likud. And he made the fatal misstep, the unforgivable crime of actually challenging Netanyahu in his party primaries. Uh, just like Israeli elections uh, from the Netanyahu perspective are supposed to uh, be determined only by Jews, uh, Likud primaries are supposed to be one candidate affairs. Uh, no one is supposed to actually challenge Netanyahu. Gidon Saar uh, did, he, he, he ran against Netanyahu and became uh, persona non grata uh, within his own party. So I don't see him as the heir apparent. Uh, I, you know, I, when, when I look at the Likud today, uh, it's such a, a, to my mind, a depressing collection of mostly third-rate politicians. Uh, and there's a reason for that, which is that Netanyahu deliberately uh, destroyed the political careers of talented uh, Likudniks uh, who could have been uh, competition to him. Uh, the result is that our our largest party uh, is is also uh, one of our most Im impoverished intellectually, uh, ideologically, and uh, and and I say this with a great deal of sadness. I I actually come uh, from that world. I grew up in in the world of the Likud. That's that's where where my my kind of my emotional grounding uh, politically is. I no longer vote with that camp, uh, but emotionally I'm still very connected there. And, uh, and what I see is, uh, is a self-destruction of what was once a uh, great uh, political movement and an essential. Thank you. Um... This is a question from Danny. What realistic policy changes do you think are possible to start integrating the Haredim into society? Does it start with leaders' rhetoric, army policy, or economic policy? Do you think a lot of the isolationism is allowed by Netanyahu, and when the Netanyahu era ends, some of this isolationism might as well? Yeah, I think that that's, that's part of it, although uh, the blame is certainly not Netanyahu's alone. You know, the, the, the game that uh, all of the parties, you know, labor, when they 
were when they existed. Uh, the Likud, uh, the center, they all see the Charedim as the, uh, uh, the as the, the block that you pay protection to in exchange for, for parliamentary support. And that game has to end. Uh, there has to be a, a consensus that we are not going to be beholden anymore to Haredi separatism. And again, you know, the, 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 the distortion in Israeli politics is that not only do we tolerate the the separatism of uh, 10% of the Israeli public, but we also subsidize that separatism. Now, I don't know of any equivalent uh, political situation in the world. And sometimes I think of non-Haredi Israelis as, as saintly for, for putting up with this kind of, of absurdity. And then when you factor in that not only does the Haredi community separate, uh, and, and not fulfill some of its basic civic responsibilities. Not only does the Haredi community expect the mainstream to subsidize its separatism, but then the Haredi community turns to the mainstream that is subsidizing them and says to, to us, you know, we don't like your lifestyle. Here's what you're going to have to change. And so the coercion comes in. Now, that is simply an untenable situation. What is going to change the situation, I think, is very straightforward. And that is economic necessity. The Israeli economy post-corona is not going to be able to subsidize the Haredi world separately. We are going to have to be, be focusing our resources on jump-starting those parts of the economy that, that, that are productive. And the notion that we're going to be investing uh, billions of shekels into a, a non-productive sector uh, is simply a national suicide. If, if it was absurd until now, the day after corona, it becomes suicidal. And so in terms of allocating resources, I think we are beginning to see the end of the mass uh, separatism of the Haredi community. That's, an op that's a very optimistic statement, actually. And I think that much of what I've said uh, so far is actually quite optimistic, because I really do look at, at this moment as transformative. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Yeah. Did you mention that Israeli businesswomen are, and men are acting like business as usual and might miss some opportunities? If yes, could you explain how we should rethink the way that we do business? No, no, I, I, I didn't mean it in terms of business. I, I, I was speaking about the business of politics. And, uh, and I was speaking more broadly about a, a certain Israeli um, means of coping. That, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, a few years ago, there was a uh, terrorist stabbing uh, at uh, the light rail station uh, near my home in Jerusalem. And I, uh, I, I saw it uh, on the news. Uh, and uh, about an hour later, I went, I walked over to, to the station to see what was going on. And what I saw was nothing. There was absolutely 
no trace that an hour earlier there had been a terrorist attack there. There were no police lines, there were, there were, there were no crowds, there were people waiting to get onto the train an hour later. Now that's, you know, I, I, I went to Pittsburgh um, about a year ago uh, and I visited uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue. And this was um, a few months after the massacre, maybe six months after the massacre. And it was still closed. There were still police barricades around the Tree of Life Synagogue. Now in Israel, we, we deal with emergencies as we, we, we absorb emergencies into, into routine. That's how we cope. That's how, how we as a society live under permanent threat, permanent siege. That's a very powerful coping mechanism that goes back in, in Jewish history. We know how to survive. We know how to cope. The problem is that when you translate that coping mechanism to, to the morning after a crisis, that's the moment to actually be galvanized. That's the moment to say, well, wait a minute, something, something extraordinary just happened to us. How do we integrate that experience into, into how do we create a new routine? But we tend not to think that way. And again, I've seen this happen in Israeli society for 40 years. Um, thank you. Next, a question from Jake Shapiro. How do we bridge the gap between Israel and the diaspora? How can we reconcile our very distinctive worldviews? What role should diaspora Jews play in Israel and vice versa? Okay, so those are two very uh, different questions. Uh, in terms of uh, navigating our relationship with diaspora Jews, I would say, first of all, recognizing the, the profound differences in our experiences and how the very different kinds of Jewish identities that each community has created uh, are necessary responses to our circumstances. Now, and, I'll, and I'll unpack that briefly. American Jews live in the most accepting diaspora, the most accepting circumstances that Jews have ever experienced, the most welcoming circumstances. As a result of that, American Jews have created forms of Judaism that are flexible, that are open, that emphasize the universal. We in Israel live in the most hostile geography on the planet, not only toward Jews, but especially toward Jews. And as a result of that, our response to our environment has been to, to be the toughest kid on the block and develop very strong tribal, particularistic loyalties. Now that is a, 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 a necessary response to our circumstances. So you have a very universal-minded, tikkun olam-minded American Jewry, and a very Jew, Judeo-centric, uh, tribalistic, Israeli Jewish identity. The first thing we need to do is to start talking to each other and explain and legitimizing each other's Jewish responses. 
American Jews are not betraying the Jewish people by creating forms of Judaism that are appropriate to their circumstances. We here are not betraying thousands of years of Jewish ethics by creating a tough uh, military deterrence, uh, uh, which, which is the only way to respond to being in, in, in the most dangerous uh, region on the planet. And so, so we need a little bit of mutual firgun, you know that great Yiddish word that became a Hebrew word, and Hebrew adopted firgun because it's, it, there is no firgun in Israel. A word that we actually don't, we don't, we don't know how to use firgun. Firgun means to, how, help me out, Jonathan, how would one, to, to indulge the other, to, to, to understand the other, to, to, even, to even rejoice in the other's achievements. So I would say that American Jews and Israelis need to begin by celebrating the, for, the very different forms of Judaism that we've created, precisely because each of those forms of Judaism uh, is, is, is such a, a wise response to its circumstances. Now, the problem is that each of these forms of Judaism can go too far. Tikkun olam can, can empty out into a meaningless uh, post-Jewish universalism, and there are certainly signs of that happening in parts of American Jewry. And on our, our side, uh, being the toughest kid on the block can, can, can segue from legitimate security needs to brutality. And we've seen signs of that happening over the years. And so a healthy American-Jewish-Israeli relationship would be one in which each side served as a kind of necessary check to the excesses of the other. That we in Israel would be reminding American Jews, okay, tikkun olam universalism, but what, you know, what about your tribal commitments? And American Jews would be telling us, okay, security, but what about uh, thousands of years of, of uh, remember that you, were, that you were strangers in the land of Egypt, to draw on a, uh, on a, timely, a timely phrase. Um, I have, I have two more questions for you. One I'm going to back, go back to, one is on national security, but one is, um, about Aliyah. Can we put an expiration date on the diaspora, a final Aliyah, and then there won't be any more questions about it? A final date when you either come and you're in, or you can never come to Israel? Is that the question? <laughs> We need a little bit of clarification here, but I was, I was intrigued by, by it, being that many of us are Olim. Yeah, the answer to that is no. Uh, next question. Okay, moving on to the next question. And the, this one... and the, reason, the reason, Shana, that it's no is that the, the moment when Israel stops uh, being uh, the, the only place on, on the planet where a Jew can get citizenship just for being a Jew is the moment when this is no longer Israel. In the I same way, in the same way that the moment where we adopt Netanyahu's criterion about what an Israeli majority is in an election, that's also the moment when we're no longer Israel. I'm raising my hands for all of the those the Olim in, in the house that are 
in this call. Um, at the national security level, how does the possibility of against Arab coalition square with the future need to act against Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah Great in Lebanon? Question. Great question. It's, it, it doesn't, it's not possible. You cannot have a functioning government uh, with, with the Arab list. It's not possible. What you can have is the Arab list supporting uh, a bill that would ban uh, anyone uh, facing uh, indictment uh, from running for prime minister, which I think is, is probably what Gantz had in mind, that he would create a government for a very short term that would pass that law, perhaps a few other laws. Uh, you can have a situation where, again, for a limited term, uh, you can have uh, the Arab list supporting a very narrow center-left government from outside the coalition. Given, given the ideological inclinations of the Arab list, given the fact that, that uh, today's generation of Arab politicians will never support any Israeli military action on any front for whatever reason. It's simply not sensible. It's not possible for us to have a, a stable coalition. But under, for, certain, for certain limited goals, uh, I believe that, that's, that that can be possible. So. Okay. Um... A question from Yosef Rosenzweig. How do you view the word Moshiach? What's your interpretation of Moshiach? Well, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's switch gears now, everybody. We're moving from Benny Gantz and Bibi Netanyahu, who are not candidates for Moshiach, either of them. <laughs> Although I would prefer Benny to Bibi, but never mind. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to answer that question directly, but I will say that this is a moment in Jewish history and in world history that is unlike anything that we've ever experienced before. Now, that's true for any historical era, of course. But this era is qualitatively different from all the other eras together. Uh, in terms of Jewish history, this is the generation that was born after the great nightmares and dreams of Jewish history were mostly fulfilled, except for Mashiach. The great nightmare of apocalypse was fulfilled, the great dream of return was fulfilled of engathering of the exiles, of the restoration of Jewish sovereignty, of the emergence of self-confident diaspora communities that feel accepted, that feel at home. Uh, so from, a, from, a, from the point of view of Jewish history, we are the generation that lives after the fulfillment of the great nightmares and the great dream. What do we do with that? In terms of the world, we are living at a time uh, where for the first time in human history, we have the capability of destroying everything. And that's something that we tend to forget. We tend to live our, our that's the way humanity copes. That's, a, that's a, its Israeli 
mode of coping with living in a in 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 an era in which apocalypse hangs over us. Now, what I can say is, as a as a religious Jew, as somebody who believes that existence is not random, that what we don't see is ultimately more real than what we do see, is all that that what is eternal is what we don't see, that what we can experience with our five senses is a very small slice of cosmic reality. Uh, as somebody who takes the Shema literally, uh, and that is that we live within a unified existence, we live within Echad, we live within a state of oneness. As a religious Jew, do we have for it? Uh, as a religious, everyone, please turn off their microphone. I just yeah. want everyone to turn off their microphone so that we can hear our speaker. I, I, at the very least, uh, feel um, committed, uh, compelled to take the idea of Mashiach as a possibility. And if there was ever a time in human history and in Jewish history when we needed somebody to show up with some interesting new ways of thinking about how we're going to get out of the situations we're facing, I, this seems to be uh, a really good, uh, good moment for, for Mashiach to come. Uh, does that mean that Mashiach will come? No. But, uh, but it does mean for me personally that, uh, you know, when, when, when Chabad went full force with its messianic campaign, that didn't seem to me ludicrous. I didn't think the Rebbe was the Mashiach. I didn't think that Chabad was really going to bring the Mashiach. But it wasn't, I, I, was, I, was, I was interested in this idea that now what we have as part of the background of Jewish life in our time is an active campaign for Mashiach, which made sense to me in, in terms of what this moment is. So I don't know if I've answered your question. I don't know if you're a Chabadnik asking that question, but uh, that's as good as I can. I'd like to add something which I think is very pertinent here, which is that people view Mashiach as a silver bullet. They want Mashiach to come and fix everything. And I think what this period is showing us is that, is there going to be a transformation of us as Jews individually, of Jewish society, of Israel, because we've had a life world changing event. The world has shut down for weeks now and possibly months. And the relationship of all the whole world in countries we see is symbiotic. So the question isn't, is this, will there be a silver bullet that'll come and solve all our problems? The question is, will we respond to these life-changing events in a way that transforms us, our society, our country, and the entire globe. And so I think what the rabbis have often said is, you know, it comes back to us. We've had potential Mashiach, but are we ready? Are we there? And so I think this period is challenging us to see, can we get there from our point of view, not from uh, you know, uh, Deus Ex Machina, which will come down and solve our problems. 
Thank you, Rabbi. Um, this is going to be our last question of the night. Um, how do those of us who care about, and this, this question is from Michelle Soffin. Um, how, Hi, Michelle. <laughs> um, how do those of us who care about both the Jewish and democratic nature of our society work toward making this country more equitable in a responsible way? Ayman Oda is probably the most moderate Arab political leader to lead the parties in a long time. He even publicly recommended Gantz. And Arab voter turnout was at an all-time high. At the moment, we send a contradictory message to Arabs who want to be a part of society. One, participate to enact change to get the resources owed to you. And two, we can't let you into the government as you are. How do we reconcile this message? I recognize the joint list crosses a red line. So how do we shift our reality? So, uh, Michelle, I, I agree with you that we are sending a contradictory message to the Arab community, but they're also sending a contradictory message to the Jewish majority. And their contradictory message is, on the one hand, we, we're proud to be Israeli, or at least 51% say we're proud to be an Israeli. Uh, we want to, 80% want to be part of the mainstream, maybe more. Uh, but then we send... Uh, uh, parties like Balad uh, to the Knesset uh, that, uh, that deny any legitimacy to the Jewish claim uh, to this land. So uh, that's, that's part of the dual, uh, the dual contradictory messages that are, that are being communicated here. Uh, I think the time has come for a genuine Arab Jewish party that is committed to integration that is not an Arab nationalist party, but is an Israeli party. Uh, I was on a panel uh, last year with, a, um, with an Arab-Israeli journalist who said something really moving. Uh, this, was, this was a panel about the nation state law, uh, which defined Israel only as a Jewish state and not also as a democratic state. And, um, and he said, you know, we Arab Israelis are actually the only real Israelis in this country because Jewish Israelis uh, are connected to the state through their Jewishness. You don't need a reminder about why you belong to the state. The fact that you're Jewish connects you to Israel. The only thing that I have to connect me to, to the state of Israel, is that I'm an Israeli. <laughs> and I thought it was an incredibly profound statement. And it's something we tend to overlook when we, when, we, when we think about these complicated identity questions. So look, I don't have a platform. I would love to see an Arab Jewish list of normative Israeli Jews uh, who can partner with Arab Israelis. And by normative Israeli Jews, I mean Zionists, Israeli Jews who are not, you know, uh, Ofer Kassif, uh, of the Communist Party, uh, who is more anti-Zionist than 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 uh, than, uh, than uh, party leader uh, uh, Ayman Ode. Uh, I mean, normative Zionist Jews partner with Israeli Arabs who will not be Zionists, and we don't expect them to be Zionists, but I do expect them to be to be Israeli patriots. And when we try to figure out together how do we expand the neutral space of civic Israel. And that takes us back full circle to really what, what I mentioned earlier in our conversation, 
which is that this pandemic is Israel's first existential civic crisis. And that really is an opportunity for us to renegotiate. Uh, I would like to just end with, with one um, response to Jonathan's, uh, what you said about taking responsibility and uh, something about uh, coming up to the final day for, for us in, in, in Israel, the seventh day, the final day of Pesach, uh, which is the day of, uh, of uh, the crossing of uh, the Red Sea. And, um, and that's, that's traditionally the moment when we, we, we remember the crossing. And the, the symbol of uh, the crossing of, of the Red Sea is Nachshon ben Aminadav. And the Midrash tells us that Nachshon, that sea was, 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 uh, was not moving. Moshe is trying. God is not, isn't doing anything. And nothing happens until Nachshon leaps into the water. It's a leap of faith. He takes the initiative and the waters part. And, and I would, so that in, in one sense, that's a, a, a strengthening of what you were, you were saying, Jonathan. And that's something for us to, in a way, carry into uh, the end of Pesach. But I would also like to, to use Nachshon in a slightly different way. Uh, and that is as a, as a symbol or an inspiration for overcoming fear. Because really the, the dominant emotion that we're all struggling against uh, this Pesach is fear. And it's everywhere. And it penetrates our sleep. It's, it's, you wake up in the morning and you, know, you have those few seconds where you think you've, you've, you've worked just a normal day and suddenly you remember, oh, right, that, you know. And, uh, and Nachshon is that, is that inspiration for us, that model for us of what it means to overcome fear. And the connection between Pesach and, 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 and overcoming fear is faith. Because what, what impelled Nachshon and what impelled Yitziak Mitzrayim, what impelled a nation of slaves to, to, to get up at midnight and sacrifice a lamb, which was one of the gods of, of Egypt, which is why they were commanded to sacrifice the lamb, uh, as their first expression as free human beings, to defy their, their, their taskmasters by sacrificing an Egyptian god, and then leave, and then leap into the water, was faith. Faith in, in, in the presence of God, faith in, in, in our destiny as a people, faith in in, in this world as meaning, this is not a random world. That's the message of Pesach. And, and it, it was the creation of a people. And so Nachshon for me is really, is really someone that I'm holding on to very strongly, this Pesach. So thank you all very much. And it was really a pleasure to interact with you all. Thank you so much, Yos. If everyone could just show their rounds of applause in their screen, I would love it. I want to take a picture, so keep your applause going.
Amazing. Beautiful. Um, Samach, everybody. I just want to say a couple of concluding words, which is, I just wanted to thank our, speak our speaker, Yossi Klein-Halevi. You know, you made a joke at the beginning of our talk that um, you are the guy that makes everybody think about the things that they've been avoiding. But I would like to say that you brought so much positivity to a moment yeah. that has been very stressful for all of us. And you have made this talk uplifting instead of a drag. So thank you so much for that. Another thing I would love to say is whenever I do the Sunset Series, I find that everyone who comes to the Sunset Series is open-minded, polite, respectful of each other's opinions. And it is such a unique place to have conversations like this because you don't get an opportunity to share your real thoughts in an environment that's safe and that everybody is respectful. So I would like to say thank you to everyone who joined for creating that environment. And um, I also I, just wanted, yeah. No, I have just one request when you finish. I'm sorry. Go ahead, okay. finish, and then I have a request. Okay, and I, and I said this um, about 20 minutes ago, but I would love to invite everyone to like the Tribe Tel Aviv Facebook page, which is where you can find out about all our events. You can write down your email address in the chat if you would like to be put on the Tribe Tel Aviv um, email list so that you can find out who is going to be on our next Sunset Series. We do this on Monday nights. Usually it's at some swanky Tel Aviv bar and everyone has a cocktail and it's a lot of fun. These, I hope, are just as invigorating and it's online. So you can follow me. My name is Shanna Fold, S-H-A-N-N-A-F-U-L-D. I'm always posting about my events. I'm always posting my reports. I'm a journalist as well. So I just want to encourage everyone to, I'm, I'm going to include the links so that everybody can follow our pages and stay informed about our events. And I'm going to hand it off to you, Yossi. You said you had something more you wanted to say. Yeah, I would just, yeah, I would just my request, request is, is if everybody could unmute and wish each other Chag Sameach. Chag Thank you, Shana. Bye, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Yossi. Thank you, Yossi. Thank you. Take care. Uh, Glenn, nice to see you. You too. And thanks for talking to Orly. Orly, yes. I hope to have a real conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Be well. Okay, over now. Stay well. Keep well, everyone.
It's not in this meeting. Chance. Hello, Shanna. Okay. That app is easy to get to. Does it work? It's where it's so far. Morning. Sure. Go back, everyone. How did you work? She's leaving it open to everybody, and or maybe you never know. Bye, everyone. Chag Sameach. On that, now we can chat with Bob. Okay. I don't think so. Is your car here? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just gonna see. What is it? 